Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Who is crawling out from under the table in a food coma. <laughs> but I've decided to, we, we were going to be off this week, but we had some content that we just couldn't keep uh, yep. from you. So we've got a special little bonus episode this week for you. So uh, it's good to be with you, Ashley. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Giving. Uh, real quick. What's your What's your favorite dish? I was just gonna ask that. Ah. Um, you know, my grandma used to make these uh, cheesy potatoes that mm. are just like legendary. Um, and they're, she would cook for an army. Um, so didn't didn't get those this year. But uh, that's probably my favorite um, Thanksgiving dish traditionally. Nice. How about yours? So this is my first year not spending Thanksgiving in South Carolina with my mom's side of the family. But on that side of the family, we have some very unique dishes that like I've never seen anywhere else. So one of them is like casserole with like a sweet pretzel base and then whipped cream and strawberries. Okay. Then there's another one that's like pineapple and cheese and breadcrumbs or some kind of crumbly thing on top. Also delicious. Um, and then, but I have to say my favorite is just traditional stuffing. My mom always like saves a little bit that doesn't go in the turkey so that I can have a vegetarian version. Oh, that's so, nice. looking forward to that this year. Well, I will tell you, you're not missing anything. Turkey is awful. And if it was good, we'd <laughs> eat it all year long. But um, before that, we get into that hot take. Who are we talking to this week, Ashley? We are talking to Nick Rapatrizone. He is a author and writer for outlets such as The Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, and America Magazine, and the author of the new book, Longing for an Absent God, Faith and Doubt in Great American Fiction. Yeah, so maybe, you know, hopefully you're getting a little downtime this weekend. Um, maybe you're recovering from a food coma, um, and you're looking for some book recommendations. Um, besides Nick's book, um, which is an excellent overview of sort of Catholic writing in the 20th century, um, he, he gives some really great recommendations if you're looking to sort of dig in to the Catholic literary imagination. Yeah, so not only the people you've probably heard of before, like Flannery O'Connor as one of the great Catholic writers of the 20th century, but maybe people that you didn't even realize were Catholic, like Toni Morrison or Cormac McCarthy. That's right. And, you know, we should say, if you haven't gotten into Flannery, if you haven't heard of Flannery, <laughs> Definitely start there. She is the she is the master. <laughs> but Nick does a really great job, as you said, Ashley, of expanding our our palates a little bit. Um, so if your palate is just overwhelmed with gravy, um, here's some literary tastes for you. Oh my gosh, that was so bad. That was a <laughs> wonderful transition. How dare you? No, I, it was. I, I want to keep it. I just I just had to say it was that was a lot. <laughs> Let's. <laughs> 
So uh, no signs of the times or constellations and desolations this week, but stick around for our conversation with Nick for Practor Zone. Joining us from sunny New Jersey is Nick Kirkpatrizone. He is a culture writer and the author of the new book, Longing for an Absent God, Faith and Doubt in Great American Fiction. Welcome to Jesuitical, Nick. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, and congrats on the book. I'm sorry that you had to publish it during a global pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) It has been interesting, certainly. But I hope everything, you know, works out for everyone. Yeah. Well, more people, I think, are on Twitter and online. So maybe maybe <laughs> it's easier to promote. Right, right. Um, but, but thank you for taking the time to, to chat with us today. Sure. Thank you. So I'm wondering um, if we can situate your book a little bit. So in recent years, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the, the state of uh, Catholic fiction in the United States. Uh, a lot of people look back in the early and mid 20th century and see these great Catholic writers like Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy, and then they look around today and are asking asking where those authors are. So, so where do you see yourself in that debate? Um, were you responding to it, uh, pushing back on anything? I was definitely aware of that debate, and that's where the book started a few years ago was, as you said, there was kind of a few articles um, really in major publications. Um, It wasn't just like the Catholic media. It was uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Um, So it was kind of a very broad conversation about what happened to Catholic writers, like the ones that you mentioned, like Flannery O'Connor. And I started off kind of a little like pugilistic, like, you know, well, of course, you know, Catholicism is awesome when it comes to the arts. Like, what are we doing? What are we talking about? And then I thought about it a little bit more, and I started to realize that there is there's a difference between, I guess, what people call the golden age of uh, Catholic American literature and where we are now. And I think that the main difference is what I tried to figure out and discuss in the, in the novel. Um, does Catholic storytelling matter still to Catholics in terms of fiction, in terms of their art? Um, does it matter to the wider public? Uh, do people who aren't Catholic, you know, people who are not uh, Catholic or, or Christian or, or of any you know faith practice, do they care about um, Catholic writers? Does it matter to them? So I was trying to engage with the debate and then kind of move beyond it a little bit at the same time. Could you unpack the title of the book for us? So why why longing for an absent God? A few of the writers in the book um, were raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, and then stopped practicing in a formal kind of traditional way. It's a pretty familiar story in America, I guess. Absolutely. It, it, you know, as an example, Don DeLillo um, would go to compulsory mass at Fordham University. Uh, it was went to Catholic schools, um, grew up Catholic. And then after Fordham, he just sort of stopped and, uh, it never disappeared from his writing. And I think that's a sense of nostalgia and sentimentality that even lapsed Catholics have for the church that led me to kind of gravitate towards that title. Um, the people I know who are no longer, um, I guess identifying as practicing Catholic, whenever we talk about kind of Catholic culture or Catholic childhood, you get that sentimental feeling from them. It doesn't mean that it was all perfect and it was, 
you know, just everything was great, but they miss it. And, and there's something powerful in that longing for, for that absence. Um, and, you know, I think there are people in the, that I cover in the book who are still practicing. Um, Ron Hansen is a novelist. He's a deacon out in California. Um, but a lot of the writers are distant from the church. And I think it never, the sense of God and, and the wanting to be with God is something that never goes away uh, for them, as well as a lot of people who aren't writers, who, who have that kind of sentimental, nostalgic leaning towards um, what kind of drew them to the church in the first place. You you write in your book, or you kind of frame um, these authors uh, as coming like before the Second Vatican Council and after the Vatican Council. Um, so can you maybe describe like what but why you see that as like an important turning point and what readers might notice changing in, in Catholic writing before and out after the council. Yeah. The Latin mass in all of its kind of theatrical nature, um, the language itself, of course, being something that was outside of the colloquial conversation during the week, you know, people who went to Latin mass before, the Second Vatican Council. Um, these would be people who are, you know, for example, in America, you know, their everyday English is kind of supplanted and replaced with this very formal, ancient um, tongue, and it's something that added a sense of gravity and difference to the Mass. Uh, a lot of the writers in the book grew up with the Latin Mass. Um, Cormac McCarthy. Uh, Tony Morrison, Don DeLillo, Thomas Pynchon. Uh, these are writers who came of age during that transition. So they retained sort of their, their memory of Catholicism was through that Latin mass. And as we get more distant from that and the language that we speak um, in everyday life and then the language that we hear on, on Sundays at church, lessons, you know, the distance between the lessons, it's, it's kind of everyday English. I think there's something that a lot of these writers sense is lost, and they felt like there was a certain artistry to the Latin mass. Um, so while maybe their subject matter has opened up a little bit after the Second Vatican Council, they feel a little more free to talk about things and to look at morality in, in a somewhat more complex way. Um, I feel like they, they, they've they sense that there's something missing there uh, for them. And that seems to kind of cut uh, through this conception I have about uh, the Latin mass and sort of the debates around that today. It doesn't seem like that's as much an ideological uh, longing for it as much as an aesthetic one. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Tony Morrison, one of the writers <clears throat> that I talk about in the book um, would be, probably considered more on the progressive end of a lot of things ideologically, but was absolutely traditionalist in her conception of the Latin mass. Um, it was the musicality of it, the cadence and the rhythm. It was, it was something that people heard and they didn't understand the language itself, the words itself in the sense that they would understand English, but they understood the formality of it and the beauty of it. And, and when you have that kind of um, synthesis of, maybe intellectual misunderstanding, but emotional um, catharsis and beauty that can create really great art. Is there, is there something deeper though, too, that you can detect in, and maybe 
what you call lapsed Catholic authors um, beyond aesthetics that that infuses their work um, that's identifiably Catholic? Well, I think for the writers who, you know, as you say, who are, who are lapsed, who are kind of um, distant from the practice, uh, the sense of God has never disappeared from them. Um, you know, I think when people say that, you're sort of once a Catholic, always a Catholic. Um, I think that's especially true for writers. Um, when you have the sense that there's something bigger than you and something that you can't quite understand. And even if you maybe lose the institutional definition of that, you never lose the desire for it. And in Catholicism, we are certainly a faith of, of storytelling. Um, you know, I think about Lent right now as being kind of the the highest moment of that story. Um, you know, even thinking about like, the stations of the cross, how, you know, we're really compelled to faith through dramatic story. And, you know, speaking with writers who are Protestant or of other faiths, uh, it's not that they don't have that, but I, I don't feel um, they don't have it in the same way as Catholic writers. Catholic writers, that, that narrative drama um, of the liturgy itself is something that, they try to channel in their own work. When, when you say like the Catholicism never leaves the writers, could you like, what are some, is it mean they're writing about nuns and priests or are there like some telltale signs that like, Oh yeah, this person definitely is like infused with the Catholic imagination. Oh, well, the guilt never goes away. I mean, even when they're <laughs> still Catholic, um, the guilt is there. Uh, the sense that, you know, we better do things right. And if we don't, we, we realize we, we, we realize and it's not that Catholic writers I think are better. I'm um, certainly at all morally than anyone else. Um, but, but they are aware of it and they are, I feel like, you know, I think Cormac McCarthy has said that he, he only could write about life or death, which seems like a very Cormac McCarthy thing to say. Uh, but he, <laughs> he meant, I think that when, when you're, when you think about what Catholicism is as a story, when it hinges on death and resurrection, and these are very palpable things, um, it's kind of hard to not come back to it as a storyteller. So a lot of the writers in the book don't write about um, Catholic parishes or priests or nuns. Um, they write about people kind of at the kitchen table talking about uh, where the next paycheck is going to come from. They, they write about abortion and they write about uh, lost friendships and lost loves and very just kind of day-to-day -day things that in the secular society occurs, um, but through kind of like that Catholic lens. And I know when I read uh, writers of other Christian traditions, um, maybe like a contemporary writer like Jimmy Quattro, uh, who, who's coming more from an evangelical background, uh, she writes about God all the time, but there's a different texture to it. Um, than the Catholic writers that I read. What's the what's the difference in the text? Well, the, sure. Um, I think Catholicism, as as a very highly kind of stylized and ritualized faith, um, there's a certain recursiveness to the way that we look at the world. We look at it seasonally and, and liturgically, and we think of um, things coming back. You know, we, we we go through Lent every year. We go through Advent every year. Um, there's a, sort of an inevitability, I think, to Catholic narratives that. 
um, things will occur again. Uh, so in, in some other writers of different faiths, I have, I feel like a certain open-endedness at sometimes. Um, and in Catholicism, I think uh, whether it's the mass itself or maybe the way that we look at sort of the, the seasonal year, um, Catholic writers feel like there's an inevitability to, to story, um, that we're kind of reliving, you know, not necessarily the, exactly the Christ narrative, but something like it maybe in all of our lives. Yeah. It might, it might be helpful or it might be helpful for me if we, if we got to like specific authors to, to flesh this out. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I feel like the gold standard is Flannery O'Connor. Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit about like, I don't know about her as the bar that has been set for the Catholic novel. Like why is that? And is that an impossible bar to meet? (laughs) Oh, it's absolutely impossible. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, (laughs) It's like you know playing Michael Jordan and LeBron James in like a pickup game. Like it's just absurd. Like to try to <laughs> compare ourselves to to her. Mm-hmm. So what I feel like she was kind of like even before the Second Vatican Council, like a turning point in that like she I don't know she writes in a it's very Catholic but not devotional. So can you maybe first what's the difference between like devotional Catholic writing and then like Catholic writing that's just like anyone it's just good literature but clearly Catholic. Sure. Okay, so you know, and I think devotional writing um, tends to be writing where a writer reveals their belief and their faith. Um, They might be bearing witness; they might be kind of testifying in a way. Uh, But it's not necessarily up to the kind of literary standards of the broader culture. So it's not to devalue um, kind of devotional writing, but it's stuff that. a person who does not share the faith um, would be compelled by. And then writing like Flannery O'Connor's is a kind of writing where even if you are not Catholic or a Christian, you sort of recognize the literary merit in it um, down to the sentence level. Uh, it, it feels like good writing. So Flannery O'Connor is one of the most widely taught writers um, in, in secular American MFA classrooms. The MFA is the terminal degree of creative writing in America. So basically, writers who are studying fiction at the highest kind of institutional level would read a lot of Flannery O'Connor. So you have people kind of in a classroom in New York City reading about these wacky characters down in the South doing just kind of wild stuff and and Jesus is everywhere and and they're picking it apart in a literary sense. But O'Connor had kind of a different reason. So Flannery O'Connor didn't write about really Catholics. She wrote about the more evangelical, fundamental, literalist characters that she saw in the South. And there was a distance between her and that. Nick, I'm wondering if you can you just say who who is Flannery and when when is she writing and where is she writing from? Flannery O'Connor um, was someone who grew up in Georgia. Uh, she went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, um, and her output as a writer was primarily in the 1950s and early 1960s. Um, she was publishing books uh, of fiction, short stories, uh, primarily, and she was publishing in many of the major American magazines at the time. So she would joke around in her letters how people started to take her seriously when she was in Esquire magazine and it was on the grocery rack at the local store. Um, (laughs) And she said, you know, look, I'm famous, basically. Uh, So she was a very kind of eccentric writer 
who would write about kind of um, wild, sometimes violent stories, but they were all God haunted or Christ haunted. Um, there was a very Southern aesthetic to it. So she would write in her stories. One example is Parker's Back, which is my favorite story of hers. Um, she wrote about a guy who's covered in tattoos, sort of a, a wild personality. And he meets this woman who is uh, very much like a fundamentalist. And he starts flirting with her. And she at first is like kind of turned off by this guy and a little freaked out by him. But then she kind of gets intrigued by his tattoos. So they, they get together and they're married. And he almost feels like though that she's a little distant from him. So he goes to get a tattoo that he thinks will make her love him. And he gets a tattoo of a very Byzantine uh, image of, of Christ's face on his back. Um, and it takes like days for them to do the tattoo. So he's gone for a few days and he comes back home and he's all pumped up and he thinks, you know, well now she's going to really love him and really take him seriously because he has the, the face of Jesus on his back. And, and he, she opens the door and she starts hitting him with a broom and screaming at him. And, and she says that he's um, basically doing idolatry um, that, you know, you never put the face of Christ on you. And she's misunderstood because what really he's done is iconography. He's had a representation of God. And what Flannery O'Connor tried to show in that moment was this person was so sure of her faith that she misunderstood what God was and what Christ was. And um, it's kind of this parable and it's very indicative of Flannery O'Connor's stories. And if, if somebody, even if they don't believe in God or don't understand Catholicism, the drama of the story compels them in. I think that's what's powerful about her as a storyteller. So, so she is somewhat, she's an author who is, she is, you know, very Catholic. Yeah. We, we now have access to her like prayer journals and like this was, mm -hmm. she took her faith very seriously, even if her, her books didn't seem weren't about Catholic characters. So how can we now contrast her with some of the, the, the lapsed Catholic writers you focus on in your book? Um, what, what's different and what carries over from, from her kind of writing? Well, the lapsed Catholic writers might have been Flannery in another life, maybe, um, if they stayed with the church. Uh, best example I can give you is Toni Morrison. Uh, Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize for Literature, I believe, in uh, 1993. Um, just kind of an internationally renowned and respected writer of first class. Uh, Toni Morrison became a Catholic when she was 12 years old. Um, she was raised in a Protestant household, and she had a Catholic cousin. She was very intrigued by the mass and the sort of theatricality of it. So she converted um, and took on the name um, Tony. Uh, her, her birth name was Chloe. And she remained a Catholic for, for the rest of her and life. Tony was short for year. Anthony, her, her confirmation yes. saint, right? <laughs> That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so she remained a Catholic, but she wavered in her kind of traditional or institutional affiliation. But she would always describe herself as, as a Catholic. So Cornell West um, would always introduce Toni Morrison as our great Catholic writer, Toni Morrison, on radio shows, on TV shows. And people would be like, what? What is that? People didn't know that Toni Morrison, even now, um, I had an excerpt from the book published um, 
online at Literary Hub a few weeks ago, and I would hear from all these people who never knew that Toni Morrison was a Catholic. Um, so she converted, and there was a interview that Cornel West did with her in 2004 at the Nation Institute, and The Passion of the Christ, um, I believe, had just come out. And Cornell West said, there is no way that I'm going to see that movie. It looks like the most disturbing thing that you can imagine, um, because it's very gory and very kind of uh, violent. And so he asked Toni Morrison, um, would you ever watch this? And she's like, well, actually, yes. And I did. I went with my friend. And she didn't necessarily love um, sort of the Mel Gibson's politics or sort of his ideology or point of view, but she felt compelled to watch the movie because she said that for her, uh, Christ is all about the passion. That the main reason why she was a Catholic was that she would think of the crucifix rather than the cross. To her, that was the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, is that um, when she went to Catholic Mass, she would look at the body of Christ almost literally hanging off the cross at the front it's almost leaning into the congregation. It's like compelling us to look at the physicality of it. And she said when she watched that movie, it was, it was a reminder to her that her theology as a writer is Catholic. You know, and when I think about that interview, to me, um, to have what I would consider to be uh, one of the greatest American writers, to be a profoundly theologically Catholic writer, and then to not have Catholics know that, or secular readers know that, is odd. Um, and then simultaneously to have Flannery O'Connor be this tremendously Catholic writer who studied in secular classrooms and then not talk about her Catholicism in those classrooms, in those settings, there's some interesting kind of dissonance going on here. So that's what I try to figure out in the book is why, why don't we call these people Catholic if they identify that way, if they write in that way? And what I'm hoping is that people see that some of the most celebrated writers of our recent generations happen to be Catholic in one way or another. And I think that speaks to the power of Catholic storytelling. Maybe we could just lean into that sort of the the crucifix, because I think one thing that pops up in Catholic writers, you know, from Flannery to Tony to Cormac McCarthy, Graham Greene, is, is violence is just so prominent. Um is that why do, do you see that as related to sort of this crucifix, not the cross type thing? Um, it, it, does that like turn maybe like other like day to day Catholics off of reading Catholic writers? You know, it, I, it might. And I think, I think part of it is, I mean, Catholicism is such an amalgamation of cultures that, certain aspects or certain parts of, of, of Catholics maybe aren't drawn to this, you know, coming from an immigrant Catholic family, like one of our rites of passage was watching The Exorcist at an incredibly young age, probably wildly inappropriate. Um, but <laughs> like violence was, I mean, when, when I think of it, the passion as the central story narrative of, of our faith is as violent a thing as you can imagine. And it's not violence for violence' sake. It's you know the, the death of the body and the rising you know the spirit in the body as well. So it, be, it to me, it's endemic to Catholicism. I do think you know, as you say, that there could be Catholics who um, don't want to go there, but maybe we should feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, I know I feel uncomfortable during Lent at church when 
when we when we read you know that narrative together as a congregation like that's supposed to make me feel like i need to remember like our part in this so i do think there's a there's a a violence in some of the Catholic writers that I that I cover, Cormac McCarthy. You know, you you brought him up. He's absolutely a, a writer who writes about tough, um, violent things. And what you get a sense of with McCarthy is that good and evil really does matter. It's not these hypothetical things. Um, that these are things that really affect our day to day life. And if violence is a part of that, it's because violence is part of, I think, the journey towards the, you know, the faith that we're hoping to arrive at. Do you get a sense, I don't know how many of these authors talked about it specifically, but would they run away from the title, like, Catholic author or writing Catholic fiction? Is it? Do you think hmm. we live in a time where it's going to be taken less seriously if it's identified in that way? Uh, it would be really sad if, it, if that was true, and it might be. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I think, I think Catholicism is so incredibly understood out, maybe even within Catholicism, but outside, um, people lump it in with other kind of denominations sometimes, you know, there's an incredible intellectual and scholarly tradition in Catholicism, not only in theology, but in, in, in many of the arts and literature. Um, I think writers don't want to feel like they're ever provincial. Um, and I think sometimes being parochial and provincial for them are simultaneous, that they don't want to feel that not everybody's going to want to read me. Um, Flannery O'Connor, I think, knew that if you're good enough, people will notice you. Um, there's one writer in the book that I talk about, Andre Debut, short story writer, who um, the e- editor of Esquire magazine, Rust Hills, told Andre Debut when he was a young writer to be as Catholic as he could be. Yeah, you know, and Esquire magazine is not necessarily known as like a diocesan newspaper. I mean, this is <laughs> Esquire. So Esquire is telling him he, the magazine editor told him write about blood and guts like a Catholic would, and, and there's something to that. You know, when we think of the receiving of the Eucharist, you know, the, the wine is blood. Like, there's a lot in the faith of palpable corporal things, bodily things. So, in that sense. I think Catholic writers fear sometimes the sense that people might perceive them as superstitious. But then there's other writers who embrace that wholeheartedly. Um, you know, I have the people in the book, Alice McDermott and Phil Clay, who are uh, two practicing Catholic writers that I look at in the last chapter, are very much comfortable with that idea and that title of being a Catholic writer. And Phil Clay won the National Book Award for Fiction. So he's doing pretty well, you know, recently. So I think it's possible that people still take this seriously. And and another thing to consider is novelty is powerful in art. And sometimes I think Catholic writers forget that when you're something that other people aren't, they can sometimes pay attention to you for that reason. And then they see really what you're all about once they really focus. What are some, uh, if, you know, say someone was trapped in their house um, and wanted to uh, maybe start reading some of these books that you talk about in your in your own book, what, what's like a good introduction to uh, Catholic fiction? Where would where would you point someone? I would have them read uh, *Mariette in Ecstasy* by Ron Hansen. Um, it's published in 1991. Um, absolutely critically acclaimed novel, won several awards. Uh, it is the most 
Catholic book that you can imagine. Um, it's about a young woman, uh, Mariette. She comes from a very wealthy family, uh, and she gives everything up against her the wishes of her uh, father, who's an, an, an atheist. He's a doctor. Um, she gives everything up to join uh, a convent. And the story takes place in the early 1900s. And she joins a convent, and pretty early in the novel, uh, she starts to have the stigmata. Um, she's bleeding from her hands, and uh, she's frightened, but she believes that it's, it's Christ speaking to her. And then when the nuns find out about this, um, they, they hate her for it. They think that she's lying. They think that she's uh, trying to do this for attention. And the novel is so interestingly told. It's a very experimental style, but it's very poetic and beautiful. And, and it gets to the central idea of if we actually believe in God and we believe in Christ, but we really, really believe, and we are presented with sometimes almost like evidence of that, how would we accept it? You know, is faith something that is comfortable for us as a story from afar and then we go on with everyday lives but what would it mean if 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 it was right in front of us and we had to deal with it and, and that's where the book goes and it's an incredible book and ron hansen was well known as a writer when he published it he's written for film um and and now as i said before he's a deacon out in california he still writes books but i would say start there because it's a book that the Catholics I've known have loved, and the people that I know as writers who are who are non-believers, they also love it. So there's something to be said for transcending that that difference. Nice. That has been at the top of my list forever. Mm -hmm. It's also it's, a, it's a great book. On the thinner side, I would say. Of <laughs> yes, books. it's pretty <laughs> right. pretty short, so that's a plus right. for some people. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us, and again, congrats on the book. Um, we have one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or lapsed or not, who would it be and why? Uh, I would say I would say Toni Morrison, because then everyone will finally realize that she's Catholic. She's, she's <laughs> if she's Saint, Toni and she Morrison. deserves it. I think I think she deserves it. She she's moved. I, I've never had a writer who have had so many students say that she kind of changed what they thought books could be. Um, so I'd canonize her. Awesome. All well, right. Saint, Saint Tony. Tony. <laughs> we got another there one. Go. All right. Awesome. So the book is Longing for an Absent God, Faith and Doubt in Great American Fiction. Where can people find it and your other work, Nick? Um, they can, the publisher is, uh, Broadleaf Books, uh, which is an imprint of Fortress Press, but it is available through the publisher as well as Amazon, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, all those other places. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much for joining us from New Jersey. Sure, thank you. <laughs> all, all from our <laughs> separate, very distant places, but it was great to That's talk right. to you. Thank you. You too. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? 
If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.